All right, Matthew chapter number six, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. Going to be talking about this issue of worry tonight. And uh, what I'm going to do over the course of of the next several weeks or more, uh, at least probably the rest of the summer, is we're going to hold off on on any series and just going to kind of seek the Lord and search the Lord, uh, search his word from week to week. Um, that's not my, that's not really my default way of preaching. Uh, but I just feel like, like that's what, what we need to do for the remainder of the summer and just deal with some things that, that the Lord brings me to in scripture and brings pastor David to in scripture. And I'm going to ask my dad to preach a Wednesday or two. Um, and, uh, I really want you to come back next Wednesday because our summer intern Spencer is going to be preaching for the first time in our church. And, and he preached upstairs for the first time. Uh, to the youth, and uh, I think I think his fam- I his family's going to be in the area or something. Some, he's going to have some guests there to hear him preach. And um, man, I can just remember when when I would come home from Bible college in the summer or whatever, and my dad would preach me uh, in in this church, and it meant so much to me that I would get that opportunity as a young man. Um, and then it meant even more to me, the support that I received from the church. And so you being in your place just to listen to a young man, try his best to fulfill his God giving calling, calling is, is just a, it's special. And we love Spencer and we want to, want him to have a, He's having a great summer, but this will add to his experience. So just encourage him along the way and, and be here in your place. If for nothing else to encourage a young man, um, that, that is on fire for the Lord and wants to follow the Lord's call. But the Lord brought me to this topic uh, tonight, maybe just because in my own heart, I'm dealing with some things. Um, and sometimes I preach, if I have to preach a one-off sermon like this, sometimes my, I just preach what's in the center of my life at the moment. And I feel like sometimes if I'm struggling with things, then maybe some people in the pew are struggling with the same thing. And I look around at the economy and, and everything that's going on there and and, and I look around at, at just the world in which we live. I, I know many, many circumstances that are represented in our church right now. And man, it could be very, very easy to be overcome with this idea of worry and anxiety. Um, and so I, I want to speak to that because Jesus speaks to it. Um, how would you finish this statement? Right now, I'm worrying the most about... How would you finish that? Maybe you would say finances. Maybe you would say career. Or health. Or kids or grandkids or your parents or your future. Or your marriage. Or something at work or politics. Here's the truth. There's probably always something at all times in our life that we could fill that blank with. That if we're not careful, that, that, that we will be on the verge, if not, not just worrying about it, just totally being overtaken by that at different seasons and stages of our life. See, here's the truth. We love to feel secure. We love to feel stable. Think about it. At home, this is why we lock our doors at night. Right? This, this is why we have alarm systems. This is why we have cameras in our doorbells now. We love our belongings to be secure. So we have paddle locks on our lockers and codes to type in in storage sheds and good insurance plans to cover our losses and 
bulldogs in our backyards. Right? We, we, we love our finances to be secure. We have secure bank accounts and private passwords. We even pay individuals to advise us on how to handle our investments. We like to feel secure in our relationships. I, I've never once met a married couple and, and, and seen a spouse in that relationship say something like this. You know what? I desire for my marriage to be insecure and unstable. I just don't ever want to feel like I'm settled. No, every married couple desires to go to bed every night and wake up next to a person that is as committed to them as they are to their spouse. Security. How many remember the events of 9-11? Right? That shook our security, didn't it? If you flew in an airplane before 9-11, then you've flown in an airplane since 9-11. You know it's way different than it was. And, and, and if you're like me, to this day, when you, when you get into that, that commercial airline, you're probably taking a couple looks around. And you hear any, like, any, any kind of restlessness going on in, in, in the, uh, where people sit or whatever, you're, you're probably getting a little nervous and your mind's instantly going, is someone hijacking this plane or what? You know, th- when we go through airports, sometimes we get frustrated at all that security, but boy, I'm kind of glad they have it. We love security because it means comfort. It, it, it means stability. And we're creatures of comfort. But here's what happens in life. Sometimes our security is threatened. Any of those areas I mentioned are one that you're struggling with. Because you and I can't put a paddle lock on everything in our life. We can't install an alarm system to ensure everything in our life and relationships will remain safe and secure 24-7. There's not an insurance plan necessarily for your marriage. It's not a bulldog there to protect your kids all the time. See, the disciples who Jesus is talking to in this passage were hardwired like we are. We tend to think that the disciples were super Christians, but they weren't. They were superhumans. They loved security too. And at one time they were very secure, very safe, very comfortable. You know why? They had full-time jobs. They had full-time salaries. They were doing okay until one day Jesus came by and said, follow me. And they literally forsook all and followed him. Did you know that? They didn't follow him halfway. They left their livelihood. They left their families. They left everything that was familiar and comfortable and secure and stable. And they followed Jesus. And get this. When Jesus told his disciples to follow me, he wasn't telling them, hey, join me once a week at a 1045 a.m. worship service. And then I'll see you next Sunday. And drop in a five or a ten in the offering plate if you get a chance. He wasn't saying that. He's saying, I want your whole life. And they quit everything. And they turned their back on Judaism. Which meant in that day turning your back on all your Jewish friends and family. And now they were placed in a state of vulnerability. No paychecks coming in. No family nearby. Sometimes they had to sleep outside with the rock as their pillow. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, at least four times, take no thought for your life. Take no thought for your life. Let me tell you what he wasn't telling them. He wasn't telling them to never think about what they were going to eat. Don't even think about it, guys. No, he wasn't irresponsible. 
You have to think about what you're going to eat and drink and what you're going to wear. The word thought in Matthew chapter 6 that we're going to study, where he says, take no thought for thy life. That word thought comes from a compound of two words, and it speaks of being divided. It speaks of being distracted. Warren Wearsby, a Bible scholar, says the word means to be torn apart on the inside. Another author put it this way. Taking thought for your life is not a problem in and of itself. It's when those thoughts take a hold of you, that beca- that's when it becomes a problem. You get that? My basic definition for worry is this, imagining the worst case scenario and then freaking out about it. That to me is what worry means. You imagine the worst case scenario, whatever situation you're currently in, and then you, you, you start freaking out about it. Now, when it comes to worry, it's most of our human tendencies to just kind of treat it as kind of a respectable sin. We often don't think of our worry as something that is, that is contrary to the written word of God. In other words, if we were to steal something, we would know that's a sin. If we were to commit adultery, we would know that's a sin. If we were to kill somebody, we know that's a sin. If we were to lie, we know that's a sin. But worry? We sometimes don't even think of that as a sin. We think of that as a weakness. We think of that as a personality disorder. We think about that as just a universal struggle. Everybody worries. Yeah, because everybody's a sinner. And I'm going to make the case from the word of God that worry is more than just a weakness. Worry, and I'm not talking about being insensitive to legitimate needs that we all face. We have to give thought to those. We have to pray about those. We have to seek counsel about those. I'm, not, I'm also not talking about some very, very real cases of, of, of mental illness and otherwise where people genuinely struggle with anxiety that is beyond their control. I'm not talking about those cases either. Because God has gifted men and women with the ability to counsel those folks and, and even some, some modern day medicines that help those folks. But I am talking about a lot of Christians that go through their life Eaten up on the inside, distracted and torn apart on the inside. A thought has taken hold of them in a deep way. That's what I'm talking about is something we need to learn to deal with. We can't tolerate it in our life. We can't accept it because it's not right. Somebody say amen. Why though? Pastor, make that case. Well, Jesus does a good job of it in Matthew 6. He gives several reasons. Let's run through that list tonight. Number one, we should deal with worry because worry is unfaithful. Everybody say worry is unfaithful. Worry is unfaithful. Say it again. Worry is unfaithful. Look at verse 25 of chapter 6. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body, what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body more than raiment? Somebody look at your Bible or at the screen and tell me the first word of that verse. If you see it therefore in the Bible, you should stop and see what it's. Look at verse 24. It's tied into the verse before it. No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. What does the word mammon mean? Well, it can mean money. It can mean earthly possessions, hobbies, stuff, career. I like how one person described mammon. 
They said this, it's anything you won't take to heaven with you. Jesus is clear to his disciples in verse 24. You can't serve God and mammon equally. Simultaneously. One's the master and one isn't. Then he goes on to verse 25 and addresses the sin of worrying about the basic necessities of life like food, drink, and clothing. How do these two verses go together? Watch this. He's saying this. If your master is indeed God, verse 24, then worrying about whether or not he's going to supply the basic needs of your life is an act of unfaithfulness to the one whom you call your master. If you're really surrendered to him as the master of your life, therefore, you call him master, trust him like he's your master. Don't worry. If you're being torn apart by worry on the inside, there's a good moment that, or a good chance that this moment in your life, your master is really not God. It's mammon. It's something earthly. If you're constantly struggling with thoughts about where's this money going to come from and how are we going to afford this and what are we going to do when the car dies and how are we going to be able to buy this for our kids, then you might be demonstrating a loyalty to that which is earthly. I'm not talking about planning for those things, thinking about those things, budgeting for those things, saving for those things, investing in those things. I'm talking about being torn up and distracted on the inside by those things. See, what you worry about reveals two things. It reveals what you value most and where you trust God the least. It reveals your loyalty. We need to deal with worry, number one, because it's an act of unfaithfulness to the one we call our master. Secondly, we should deal with worry because it's unnecessary. Everybody say that. Worry is unnecessary. I get that from verse 26 and verse 32. The end of verse 26 says, yet your heavenly father feedeth them. Are you not much better than they? Verse 32 sounds a lot like that. For your heavenly father knoweth that you have need of all these things. Jesus refers to God two times by the phrase heavenly father. What is Jesus saying? He's saying disciples... It's completely unnecessary to worry about the necessities of life based on who your father is. Have you forgotten who your father is? How many have ever heard of a girl by the name of Jennifer Catherine Gates? She lives in Medina, Washington. That's where she grew up. She's not your typical girl because she's the the, the daughter of Bill Gates. Founder of Microsoft. Microsoft. At one time was estimated to be worth over a hundred billion dollars. When Jennifer was growing up, can you ever imagine her worrying about having lunch money? Can you ever imagine her uh, nervous about whether her dad could afford a new dress for her? Or a new car? No, why? Because of who her father was. Do you realize it would be just as ludicrous for a Christian to worry about the necessities of life based on who our father is? He's a lot richer than Bill Gates ever could be. To illustrate the care of our Heavenly Father, Jesus uses two natural illustrations. He uses the bird and the flower. Verse 26. Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your Heavenly Father feedeth. Them are you not much better than they. Birds don't sow. They don't reap. They don't plant crops. They don't put fertilizer in the grass. They don't have barns and silos to store food. God feeds them. Last time I checked, by and large, birds are healthy and happy. 
I've never met a bird that's suffering from hypertension or a stress-related disease. In fact, I read the, the way that many birds communicate is through singing. They sing for a variety of reasons. They sing to attract a mate. Worked for Jenny. They sing to market territory to identify themselves. One thing, however, you will never read about that, that, that birds sing about is this, a grocery bill. They never chirp about where they're going to find worms or insects. Why? God's provided for them in your garden, in your backyard. And then he says, are you not much better than they? The answer is absolutely yes, you're better than birds. Birds aren't created after the image of God. You are. Birds are not joint heirs with God through Jesus Christ for all eternity. You are. Jesus didn't tell the birds, don't let your heart be troubled. I'm going away. I'm going to prepare a place for you. If I prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and get you. He didn't tell birds that. You are his crown creation. And if he will feed a lower creation such as an ugly black bird in your backyard, he's got his eye on you. Then he says, look at these Palestinian flowers. I'm sure he's standing by the hillside where they are because that's why he talks about them. Verse 28. Why do you take thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Jesus said, look at all these plants wearing these beautiful, colorful petals. They didn't spin their own garments. They didn't design that themselves. They didn't work to create their own clothes. Yet your heavenly father has outfitted them with robes more glorious than King Solomon's finest royal attire. King Solomon, King Solomon. The richest dude to ever walk the soils of the Middle East. King Solomon, you you know his robes were awesome. But yet look at verse 30. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, ye of little faith? Watch here. Here's what he's saying. These flowers are beautiful, but they don't live forever. They don't last very long. Back then, they were pit, they, 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 when, they, when they died, they were picked and they were thrown into a furnace. It was like fuel. If a woman wanted to hurry the baking process, she would build a fire inside the oven as well as under it. Throw those flowers in there to speed up the baking process. The point is, once the flower's beauty was gone, it had little use except to burn up as fuel for baking. Jesus is reminding us that if God bothers to array the grass of the field with beautiful, but watch here, short-lived flowers, how much more is he concerned to clothe you and care for you who are destined for eternal life? Are you getting the point? If you're a child of God, your worry is absolutely unnecessary because of who your heavenly father is. So next time you're worried about the grocery bill, go to the backyard or the front yard and just try to find you a bird to look at for a little bit. And remind yourself that if God will take care of that bird, he'll take good care of me. If you're trying to figure out how am I going to buy my kids clothes? How am I going to afford their school bill? How am I going to pay the cell phone bill? How am I going to keep the lights on? Then you get in your car and you go out to the country and you find a field full of sunflowers. Have you ever saw a field full of sunflowers? It's beautiful. But have you seen sunflowers that die? They're ugly. But God takes time to make the flower pretty for just a short amount of time. 
and sit there and look at it and start praying and worshiping and praising God. If you're going to make that short-lived flower look so beautiful, you'll take care of your, of your child who is destined for eternity with you. Oh, yeah. Don't worry. Deal with it. Why? Because it's unfaithful. It's unnecessary. Give me, let me give you a third reason. It's ineffective. Verse 27. Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit to his stature? Does anybody in here wish you were taller? I see that hand, Steve. I, I can barely see it, but I see it. <laughs> Steve can walk up to Pastor David, who's you know, just a tall drink of water. He can say, Pastor David, I want to be like you so bad. Man, I've wanted long legs like you my whole life. I've wanted a stretch out torso like you my whole life. But God squished me down into a little small frame. And he could go up and talk to David and talk to David and talk to David and tell me how I can get taller. And it's not going to make a difference. And the application to worry is simple. What are you going to change about your situation by sitting around and talking about it and thinking about it and worrying about it constantly? Answer. You'll change the same amount of your situation as you'll change of your stature. Zero. Nothing. Worry's ineffective. You can't add one cubit to your job security by worrying about it. In fact, it's probably less secure because you come into work the next day a total wreck because you stayed up all night. Got no sleep. You can't add one cubit to your child's heart for God because you stay up all night fretting about it. Some of their behaviors are just plumb out of your control. You can't add one cubit to your bank account or your 401k because you sit around and worry about it. You can't add one cubit to your health by fretting over it. In fact, doctors will say that stressful worry is one of the worst things for your health. You can't add one cubit to that broken relationship by staying up all night thinking about it, what it should be and what it could be. You can't add one cubit to your future, your retirement, your career, getting married, having children, just by thinking nonstop about what the next step in your life is going to be and how you're going to make it happen or if it will happen at all. Worries like a treadmill in your mind. It's racing fast, but you're not getting anywhere. It's ineffective. Notice, fourthly, you should deal with worry because worry is worldly. Worry is worldly. What I mean by that is worry reflects the attitude of a person who doesn't know Jesus. How do I know? Look at verse 31. Therefore, take no thought, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or wherewithal shall we be clothed? Why? Because after all these things do the Gentiles seek. Jesus said, don't worry because that's what Gentiles do. Now he was referring to unbelievers, to non-Jews, to the lost world. Those who have no hope in God, and it makes sense. They naturally put all their hope and expectation in things they can enjoy now. And that makes sense, does it not? For someone who doesn't know God. Like, like they're going to stress and worry about stuff. Why? Stuff is their God. Possessions is their God. Career is their God. Pleasure is their God. They live for weekends on the lake. They live for a big house. They live for a fancy car. They live for ease. They live for money. They live for job promotions. They live for success. And when you don't have an eternal mindset, it's natural to try to get everything you can out of this world. But friend, that shouldn't be the mindset of those of us who know Christ. We shouldn't think like that. To worry and be caught up about physical and earthly things constantly is to have a worldly mindset. 
Jesus is telling his disciples, I've called you to reach the Gentiles, not be like the Gentiles. Yet here you are worried about the essentials of life and being totally consumed with an earthly mindset that you're thinking and you're behaving like the people you're supposed to be influencing. Have you ever thought about the message your worry sends to those around you about your heavenly father? I want you to get this point, church. When you're at work and everyone's worried and stressed about what the boss is going to do and the new policies that are being installed that no one's agree with, let me ask you a question. Do you jump in there with everyone else and worry and complain and gossip and fret? Or is there a marked difference in how you handle and deal with the stress and uncertainties and disagreements that arise at work? Does your response tell all your coworkers that you trust your heavenly father to take care of you? Your trust isn't in your boss. Parents, do you ever stop and think about how your worry affects your kids? Do you think about the message you're sending to them as you're constantly voicing your worry and distrust out loud? When you teach your children that God will supply all our needs according to his riches and glory, yet you're stressed out 90% of the time about how he's going to do it? That's sending mixed signals. Christian, have you ever thought about the fact that you have friends that are without Christ on Facebook that see your post? So when you type out your worry and you type out your stress and you type out your fear, you know what you're doing? You're blending right in with the world. If you're to examine your last 20 posts, would there be worry and discontentment and complaining all worldly things? Or would there be praise and encouragement and the promises of God? No, seriously, if someone had to just base your walk with God off your social media profile, what you shared, what you liked, and what you typed, would it, be, would it just be incredibly obvious that you are a child of God based on your trust in Him? Or would they look at you and say, man, you're no different than anybody else? Let me give you a fifth reason. Look at verse number 33, a verse you probably have memorized. But seek ye first. The kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. I believe Jesus is making the case, don't worry. So I'm going to focus on that, that, that very first line. I want you to notice the conjunction that the verse starts with. But. You could also say rather than or instead of. Jesus is saying, instead of worrying, seek first the kingdom of God. Now you need to study. Think with me. He chose to use the word first on purpose. Watch here. You can seek the kingdom of God and worry simultaneously. You can come to church and worry. You can sing and worry. You can greet and and worry. I can preach and worry. You can give and worry. But there can only be one first in your life. There can be a second and there can be a third and there can be a fourth, but there can only be one first. Worry is distracting because it it keeps you from seeking the kingdom of God first. You can worry and and seek the kingdom of God. But he didn't say that, that, that the cure for worry is just to go to church or just to seek the kingdom of God. He said the cure to worry is seek first. The kingdom of God. Let me ask you, what's your first right now? Your kingdom or God's? 
What's the biggest thing on your mind right now? God's kingdom or yours? You come to church today and you're torn up and a stranglehold about this bill and that need and this problem. You can go through the motions and I'm glad you are, but God might not be at the forefront of your mind. He's your second. Worry's your first. Worry can distract you in your giving of your first fruits to the Lord. Maybe there's some tie in there. Solomon said, give of your first fruits. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. But when the offering time comes, it'll be pretty obvious to you which one's your first. Is your kingdom first? Or is God's kingdom first? Or does God's kingdom get the leftovers after you pay for your kingdom? Worry can distract us. It can distract you in your efforts to reach people for the kingdom. You know why? Because you would ask that person to come to church, but you're too worried about what they think of you. You would get into a gospel conversation with them. You would, when you sit down for the break room, you you would ask them, hey, do you mind if I pray for our meal? You would do that. Except worries your first and the kingdom of God your second. You're more worried about being rejected and being misunderstood and being uncomfortable than you are that person not going to hell. You see how worry's distracting? It distracts us from what ought to be our first priority, and that's the kingdom of God. I want to give you one more, and I think the case is closed after this. Jesus said, Worry's sinful, and you need to deal with it because worry is unwise. At the end of the day, it's just not smart. How do I know? Verse 24. Take therefore no thought for the morrow. Why? For the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. What does that mean? You know what it means? It means you have enough to deal with in today's problems. Don't add tomorrow's problems to it. That's not smart. Kent Hughes said this, worry will not destroy tomorrow's trials, but will sabotage today's strength. George MacDonald said this, no man ever sank under the burden of the day. It is when tomorrow's burden is added to the burden of today that the weight is more than a man can bear. You are not called to carry the burdens of 48 hours. You're called to deal with the 24 hours you're in. And if you're trying to carry seven days worth of burdens, you're going to fall beneath that burden because one day is more than you can handle. Some people suffer from what they call anticipatory anxiety. You heard of that? You know what that means? It means you worry before there's anything to worry about. It means you fear before there's anything to fear. In fact, a woman who had lived a long time, long enough to learn some lessons said this, I've had a lot of trouble, most of which never happened. I read about an old English executive. His name was J. Arthur Rank. Say he was a busy man. He had a ton of responsibility. He had an ulcer because of all of his worry. His doctor said, you got to deal with it, Mr. Rank. You got to deal with it. So he thought of a very creative way. He said, I'm going I'm to build a little worry box. I'm going to put the worry box on the corner of my desk. And for every worry 
that comes into my mind. I'm going to write it on a piece of paper and I'm going to put it in my worry box and I'm going to close the lid. And I'm not going to look at the worry box, but once a week and I'll do it on Wednesdays. Worry Wednesdays is what he called it. And what he found is that when he went to his box and started reading the worries that he had put in there for the previous seven days. He found that most of them were already settled. It would have been useless to have worried about them in the first place because half of them took care of themselves. To sum up verse 34, this is the way I like to say it. Worries unwise because it wastes today's time to clutter up tomorrow's opportunities with yesterday's troubles. It's just not smart, folks. It'll tear you up. God did not make you. He didn't make you to be a worrier. Your body can't handle it. Your heart can't handle it. Your mind can't handle it. Your gut can't handle it. Your marriage can't handle it. Your boss can't handle it. God didn't make you to worry. That's why he gave you prayer. That's why he gave you prayer. That's that's what I want to close with. Because some of you is like, I've always known worry is bad. But for some reason I can't kick it. I've always known it's unwise. But I still do it. So I agree with Jesus. Worry sinful. I need to deal with it. But what does that look like, Pastor Tyler? Starting tonight when I go home. What does that look like? Starting tomorrow when I go to work. What does that look like? Three words. Number one, trust. Trust. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thy own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. Did you know that trusting God is a choice? And you're capable of making it. You know how I know? Because you sat in that chair tonight. You're trusting that chair to hold you up. You didn't even think about it. You've trusted pharmacists before. You've trusted doctors before. You've trusted dentists before. You've trusted physical therapists before. You've trusted psychologists before. Pilots. Did I say that one? You trusted the semi-driver that's coming by you on Highway 83 at 70 miles an hour in the other lane. You trusted him to stay in his lane. Or maybe you didn't and you got over. I'm just trying to say you trust every day. You trust something every day. You choose it. And sometimes without thinking about it. But yet the God of the universe who sustains it all and keeps your heart beating, we can't trust him. You're going to trust a semi driver. It's been driving for 10 hours already. You're you're, as as educated as that doctor is. You're going to trust him by default. You don't even get to meet the pilot of these aircrafts anymore. You barely get to see the back of their head. And you're just going to go sit in your chair, put in your AirPods, fall asleep. Forget that you're 38,000 feet in the air and you can't control any of it. But yet the God of the universe, somehow you don't like something at work. Somehow your, your marriage is in a tough spot. Somehow the boss hands down this policy and says, hey, we can't give any raises this year. Somehow a health scare comes. And we're going to trust all those things almost automatically without thinking about it. But we can't trust the God that saved our soul. It's a choice. A moment by moment choice. When that worry comes, what you got to do is say this. God, I trust you. I trust you. I trust you. Word two, pray. 
Be careful for nothing. Worry about nothing. How? Pray. By ev- in everything. By prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known unto God. Pastor Tyler, what does that look like? It's so simple, church. The moment worry strikes, you stop where you are, or at least in your mind, and you say, God, I, I'm trust you. I need to trust you. You just prayed. You just prayed. Praying doesn't mean going into a prayer closet, getting on your knees or coming to an altar on a Wednesday or a Sunday. That is a great practice. But prayer is simply a conversation with your father. Sometimes it's just 911 prayers. God, help me. You're driving down the road, worry strikes. God, I trust you. You're at work, worry strikes. God, I trust you. You can't get on your knees every time worry strikes. You've got to be in such a posture before the Lord that when worry strikes in the normal rhythms of life, you can just talk to him without saying anything out loud. God, I trust you. God, I trust you. God, I trust you. God, I trust you. Word number three, repeat. The devil's not scared because you trusted God and prayed one time. James says resist the devil. Why? Because he's going to keep coming at you. Resist is this, is this ongoing, like, like resistance, stiff arming him, uh, holding the armor of God up and, and praying the devil away. It's not one prayer. It's not just one conversation with the pastor. It's not one worship song. Just because you feel good doesn't mean the devil went away. There's a lot of worship songs I can play for about three and a half minutes and I feel good, but about ten minutes later I don't feel good anymore. The devil's always trying to get me to worry. Always trying to hit me with this besetting sin that I wrestle with on a regular basis. And so here's the rhythm i got to live in. Trust, pray, and do it again. Five minutes later, trust, pray, and do it again. And here's where most, most Christians get in trouble. Because here's the rhythm they live in. Worry, fret, repeat. Worry, fret, repeat. You ever, got, you ever been there? Like a hamster in a wheel? You just can't get that thought out of your mind. Worry, fret, repeat. And you almost stop fighting it eventually. And that's how we get in all kinds of messes. Worry, fret, repeat. And when we get in a rhythm of worry, fret, repeat, some crazy things start coming out of our mouth. Or from our thumbs. Some crazy dispositions and attitudes start spilling out of us. Because worried people hurt people. Worried people exhaust people. Trust, pray, repeat. What you worry about reveals where you trust God the least. So how would you finish that statement one more time? I'm worrying the most. Right now, tonight. This is what's eating my lunch. Come on, we're not super Christians. Everybody can fill that line with something. What's on my mind the most right now that's plaguing me? And I, it's probably a very legitimate need like is on my mind tonight. It's not something that's trite. It's not something that's small. It's something that is legit. But it doesn't matter if it's big or if it's small. Worry needs to be dealt with. Or worry will deal with you. God help us tonight. My invitation to you. Is that as the instruments play, I want us to come and just, whatever fills that line, I want us to leave it with the Lord tonight. At least begin that rhythm. Trust, pray, repeat. When you come to an altar, by the time you leave this building, you're going to need to do that again.
get home before you go to bed, you have to do it again. If, if, if the accuser of the brethren wakes you up in the middle of the night, you have to do it again. Trust, pray. You get in that rhythm and you find that you will have the promise of Philippians chapter 4. Peace that passeth all understanding. But if you live in the rhythm of, of worry, fret, repeat, and then you still expect peace. Nope, don't put God on the hook for that. You do your part, God will do his. Let's get to the altar tonight and say, God, help me with this and be specific with God. Stand to your feet.